Well, we're continuing this morning in our Psalms series, these Psalms that were written uh, during the time of 1 Samuel, especially chapters 19 through 22-ish. And we come to the fourth of these Psalms. There, from what I can tell, at least seven, possibly eight Psalms that David wrote during this period of 1 Samuel. As we've been making our way through that book, we've paused the narrative to take up these Psalms that David wrote during this time. And one of the reasons that we're doing that is because there is a rawness and a reality that is presented in the Psalms that help us understand some of what is going on in David's heart and soul as he encounters these difficult challenges. You know, it's one thing to read a story and understand what's going on in the story. It's another thing to dive in to how the characters feel about it. And that's one of the reasons we want to we want to look at the Psalms is because we don't want to just understand what happened to David. We under we want to understand how he processed it. And because in doing so, we ourselves learn how to process the difficult challenges that we face in our lives as well. You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible, among many things, is that it's so honest about life in a fallen, sinful world. It's true that life in a sinful world can mean that we are victimized. It is true that instead of being protected or helped or comforted by others, we can be abused by them. Some of you here this morning know all too well what I'm talking about. You were abused by someone who should have been trustworthy, a family member, teacher, neighbor, coach, pastor, friend, And instead of being protected by those people that you look to for protection, you were violated. You were treated with malice. Someone used you. Someone misused you. Someone took advantage of you. Now you're wondering, is is it even possible to recover from something like that? Well, the simple answer to that question is yes. Recovery is possible, but you know that you can't just snap your fingers and make everything all better. And the Bible doesn't present healing or recovery that way anyway. You know that pat answers don't help, uh, but here are two important truths that you need to keep in mind and that we all need to keep in mind. You're not alone and there is hope. Those things don't change. Suffering would push us into ourselves and make us believe that we are the only ones who experience these sorts of things when the Bible would tell us otherwise. And Sometimes the way we respond to that suffering is feeling like that we are all alone and that there's no hope, there's no way out of this. Your recovery will be a process of learning and remembering those two truths, not just once, but over and over and over and over again. I am not alone and there is hope. Think about how bread gets made. It must be kneaded so that the yeast has a chance to work its way through the whole loaf, and that takes time. And so it is with the truth of God's Word. God's Word has to be kneaded over time, kneaded not N-E-E-D-E-D, but of course that's true as well, but kneaded with a K, kneaded into who you are until it begins to work its way into every part of us. And it just takes time. It takes repeated exposure and repeated meditation and repeated prayer, repeated repeated reminders. The damage that we suffer at the hands of others may be done in one or two terrible moments, and yet the healing and the restoration of those events can take place 
over a lifetime. They happen at a very human pace. And really, it unfolds at your pace. It unfolds as part of your story, and it unfolds over time. You know, one person that has taught me probably more about how to process suffering in the Christian life is the Christian counselor, David Pallison. And uh, he's now with the Lord in glory. But he was a Christian counselor, helped to start the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF. Some of you know of that ministry, started out of Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, One of the reasons he's taught me so much about suffering is because he's taught me so much about the Psalms. I can hardly read a Psalm without wondering what David Pallison, either if he wrote something on it or if he had something to say about it. And so when I came to Psalm 57 this morning, I thought, or this week, I I thought, what did David Pallison, I wonder if David Pallison wrote anything on Psalm 57. And sure enough, he did. He hasn't written on every Psalm, but he's written on a lot of Psalms. And he wrote one of his smaller works on specifically Psalm 55 to 57. And so I consulted that work this morning. And he he acknowledges that when he dove into Psalm 57, um, he encourages us to use these psalms and make them into our own prayer. And here's how he encourages us to do that. He says, start by getting four different colored markers and follow four strands of thought through the psalm. He says, these strands will help us express and redefine the hurtful experiences in our lives. The four questions that he poses, that he asks us to use the four different colored markers on, are the four questions that form the outline of the sermon this morning. What happened to me? How do I feel? What does God say about it? And what does faith look like? What happened? How do I feel? What does God say? And then what would faith respond to? What would that look like to respond to what God said? So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take Pallison's questions and work with you this morning on a on a workshop for how to think about the suffering and difficulty, especially when it's put on us by the sin of others, how to process that, think about that, work through that in Psalm 57, because that's what's happening to David in these Psalms. So pick your four colors. Pick your four favorite colors, metaphorically. Uh, I'm going to start with red, since red is, in my mind, represents sin and what happens to us. So I'm going to grab my metaphorical red marker, and I want you to take this marker, and I want you to underline the phrases in this psalm that express the sort of thing that happened to David. So you got your red marker in your mind? All right, let's, let's look at the first question, what happened to me, and let's work over this psalm, and mark it up in red. Now, David writes Psalm 57 as he's wrote as he wrote a number of these psalms that we've been considering at a, at a significantly low point in his life. Remember the context. King Saul is trying to find him in order to put him to death. And the only reason Saul is trying to kill David is because he is jealous of David because God has anointed him to be king in Saul's place. And because God is blessing David above Saul, remember Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Now David confessed to his close friend, Saul's son, Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 20 verse 3, an honest, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking statement when he says, there is but a step, Jonathan, between me and death. There is but a step 
between me and death. So David tried to escape to the Philistines, but he found his life to be in danger among them too. So he has fled in 1 Samuel 22 into a cave. And we are told that that cave is in Adullam. And that cave is designed to protect him, to give him some level of anonymity so that he will not be found out. And from the title at the beginning of Psalm 57, we discover that this is what David's situation was. We read that it's a mictum, that's probably a musical term, a mictum of David where he fled from Saul in the cave. So 1 Samuel 22 is the backdrop. David's in the wilderness. David has a few hundred men beginning to gather with him, but he's being pursued by 3,000 chosen men and Saul himself. So it's five to one against David, and he's trapped in a cave. Now, notice how David describes all this in verse 1. How does he say, that? Or how did, what language does he use to describe the situation he's experiencing? He uses the phrase, the storms of destruction. You notice that in verse 1? He says, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. In verse 3, he refers to those who trample on me. We saw something similar in Psalm 56, which we considered a few weeks ago, where David said, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me, my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly, they stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. In verse 6, David says, They set a net for my steps, they dug a pit in my way, storms, trampling, nets, pits. These are the sorts of metaphors that David is using to describe what is happening to him. It's all these images that give us a glimpse into the difficulty that he is facing in his situation. He's experiencing something that feels like a net has been set for him, like he's going to be trapped, like a pit has been dug that he's going to fall into, that he's being trampled upon and there's no way he can get out from underneath it. And there's this sense in which he feels like he's surrounded by a huge storm that is destined to destroy him. Look at verse 4. He says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp, sharp swords. Mark that in red. He says, I'm surrounded by those who are like lions. You know, people can be like that. Maybe you've been like that. Maybe you are like that. Where people experience you as a lion in their life. Someone who just seems to want to chew them up all the time. David says, I feel like I'm in the midst of lions. I feel like I lie down and, I'm get, and, I, and I can feel the breath, their mouth wide open and their teeth on my neck. And notice how he experiences this. He experiences it through their tongue, through what they say about him. You didn't just think you could be a lion by punching people, did you? No, it's the way you use your mouth. It's the way we talk about people and talk to people. And David has been misrepresented. He's been lied about. And people are using their tongues to devour him. 
he says, these lions, these people are, have teeth like spears and arrows. Isn't that the way the Bible describes the tongue? Like a sword that pierces. They pierce, they slice, they dice him up at every opportunity. These evil men are pictured as carnivorous beasts. These ruthless soldiers are like lions who utilize with military effectiveness the most powerful arsenal in the human person, the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Don't give me any of that junk about words will never hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Yes, they can, and so can words. They can do a whole lot worse than breaking bones. They can kill souls. David acknowledged that. This is what's happening to him. He hasn't been physically attacked yet, but he has had a slew of lies written about him and spoken about him. Saul has drummed up support, claiming David is some sort of insurrectionist who wants to take over the throne by force, and he's convinced a large number of people that uh, David is on a, on a mission to overthrow Saul, when that's, we know from the story that's not what's happened at all. So David has been verbally abused. Saul, his father-in-law, who should have been helpful and kind to him, who at one point loved him and was appreciative of him, have instead turned on him and demeaned him and assaulted him. And they not only verbally attacked him, but they're seeking to physically kill him. They not only want to hurt him, they want to take him out. So this is what's happening to David. Storms of destruction, trampling, in a pit, set a net, surrounded by lions. It's people who want to devour him verbally, physically, and in his life. That's the first question. What happened to David? That's what happened to David. Now, secondly, what does it feel like? All right, so put down your red marker. Pick up a blue one. Pick up a blue one. Pick blue because it's kind of sad, you know. David reckons that. Now, I want you to, as we work through here, underline all the phrases that express how David feels. His anguish, his fear, his terror. Notice, I think he summarizes it pretty simply in verse 6. He says in verse 6 in the middle there, after he says, they set a trap for my, or the net for my steps, he says, my soul was bowed down. In Psalm 55, again, he's writing this psalm around the same time as Psalm 55 was written. He says, I am restless in my complaint. This is Psalm 55, 4 to 6. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. You ever been there? Somebody said something to you or about you. And you just collapsed. You were restless. Your heart was in anguish. You felt like, I just got, I want to get out of here. I want to get as far away from this situation as I possibly can. Psalm 56, 3 to 8. 3 and verse 8 here in, in the psalm right before this, David said, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. You kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. How does this make David feel? How does this whole situation make David feel? Is he a stoic? He just stuff it? He's a man's man, right? Yeah, he's a man's man. He's a warrior. He slays thousands of people. He also plays the heart and brings cries. 
You got that view for biblical manhood in, in your view? You should. Otherwise, men, you're going to be warped as men. Men feel deeply. Men cry hard. That's what manliness looks like. I guarantee if you met David, he'd have calluses on his hands. I guarantee if you met David, you would say, man, that's not a guy I want to see on a, in, a, in an alley on a dark night. He looks like he could beat somebody up. But he was also realistic and in touch with how things made him feel. He says, my soul's bowed down. I'm restless. I moan. I'm in anguish. I'm in terror. I'm in fear. I'm in horror. I'm tossing. I have tears. All these words describe how he feels. Brothers, sisters, have you ever used those kinds of words with God? Do you feel like that's irreverent? Have you ever told the Lord, Lord, my soul is sad. Do you hear my moaning? I feel restless, Lord. My heart hurts. I feel like I'm at the doors of death. I just want to die. Or I, I'm afraid. I feel overwhelmed with horror and terror. I wish I could just run away and find a place where I didn't have to feel this way. Ever say that to the Lord? It's certainly right to do so. Facing what's happened to us is the first step of healing from it. Feeling it and the effects of it in our lives is the most important first step that we can take. Facing it might be the last thing you want to do because of all the feelings it brings up, but those feelings need to be brought up. Many of you have, many of you have suffered and you're terrified of the memories associated with it. And typically, maybe you've only dealt with it in two ways. Either you cover it over with denial or just you get busy and do something else so you don't have to think about it. And those things retreat for a time down into the black hole and then they'll resurface again later on. And they'll keep coming back and they'll keep coming back and they'll keep coming back. There is a third way though. You don't have to deny it and you don't have to suppress it. And you don't have to just get busy to try to not think about it. You can learn to hear God's promises to pour out your heart to God. And you can express those troubles that you are experiencing in a God-honoring and purposeful way. I don't think I've completely learned that lesson yet, but I'm learning it. Um, I was encouraged by reading a sister's commentary on that reality this week. Melissa Kruger is the wife of Michael Kruger. Um, he's works at Westminster Seminary somewhere, I think, or Reformed Theological Seminary. Melissa is a great sister in the Lord. And she, she I want to read you a, a testimony of hers where she recounts something of this own struggle in her own life of recognizing what's happened, but then the struggle with how to process the feelings associated with it. Here's what Melissa writes. She says, When Paul wrote, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I have pondered these words, longing to share in this secret with Paul, wanting to know Christ in such a way that inner joy abounds whatever the outward circumstance. At times, I wrongly viewed contentment as an emotional evenness that nothing could assuage. You think of contentment like that? Like if I was really content, I wouldn't feel anything. Well, that's not contentment. Melissa says, so when emotions would arise, such as sadness, anger, frustration, or grief, these were signs of my failure. My quest for contentment often led me to try and avoid my emotions. Yet each time I tried to push them down, they would pop back up in another form. 
In the midst of my inward debate, life kept happening. We suffered a miscarriage. My father had a heart attack and stroke. My mother faced cancer in months of treatment, and a dear friend died after a long fight with breast cancer. Where was I to go with the pain and the loss I was feeling? In my wrestling and thinking, my husband lovingly and faithfully nudged me back into God's word. Melissa, you need to go to the Psalms. In the Psalms, I learned that sadness and grief were not signs of faithlessness, but part of life in a fallen world. Grief could not walk beside joy. Sorry, grief could walk beside joy, and they were not in opposition to one another. Contentment was not an avoidance of emotions, but a God-centered expression of them. The Psalms provided examples of saints who faithfully wrestled with God as they poured out their souls before Him. Their emotions drove them closer to God in a new dependence upon Him. And may we learn that lesson from our sister Melissa that she learned from the Apostle Paul, who no doubt learned it from David himself. So that's how David felt about it. All right, put down your blue marker, pick up a yellow. Because I want this to stand out in bold, bright, highlighted colors. Because this makes all the difference. We can't stop in this process. We can't go from, okay, I've recognized what's happened. Okay, I've told God how I feel about it. That's it. No, we're only halfway done. We're only halfway done. What is said about God? What is said about God? So let's use our yellow marker and let's underline what Psalm 57 says about what God is doing. In the midst of all this, what is God doing? What is God doing? Notice verse 1. David says, In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. That's good news. The NIV says, Until the disaster has passed. Isn't it good to remember that this too shall pass? What feels heavy now will one day be lighter. The storms of today eventually give way to the sunshine of tomorrow. And as we sang this morning, the sweeter will be the sunshine because of all the storms we faced. Years ago, Amy Carmichael, missionary, She lived from 1867 to 1951. She wrote the following. She says, I think one of the devil's favorite devices is to try to make us dwell on the hardness of things in general and to make us feel as if they would always go on like this. But they will not. They are shadows that pass. The storms will pass, but God won't. God's not going anywhere. The storms go somewhere. God doesn't go anywhere. And until they do, even if these storms last a lifetime, which they may, God does not promise that they won't, where are we anyway? In the shadow of God's wings. David says, I'm in the shadow of God's wings until the storms of destruction pass by. Do you know how precious that image is? to be in the shadow of God's wings. It's a picture of a mother bird that's hovering over and caring for their young, just as Jesus does for us. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 23. You know, Matthew 23 is probably Jesus' strongest words he ever spoke on earth. He spends a whole chapter rebuking the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. 
He calls them as a prophet. He calls them out for their sin. He, he speaks in such a way that he knows that everything he says is going to eventually end, to him get, end up getting him in major trouble. It's right before we start to get on the road to the cross where Jesus just lays his cards on the table and he says, Pharisees, here's why you're going to hell. And he tells them, gives them seven woes, pronounces curses on them. Now, at the very end of that chapter, you would think it would just end in a solemn, somber, I mean, the whole chapter is serious, but what does Jesus say at the very end? He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. I wanted to gather you under my protective wings your entire life. You didn't want it. You didn't want to have anything to do with me. In the eye of the storm, dear ones, the Lord is there with us. He's over us. He's shielding us from being completely destroyed by that which, by that which, what might ordinarily destroy us and would destroy us otherwise if the Lord had not been there. Psalm 91, 4 to 6. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Deuteronomy 32, 11, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Now, what's a pinion? We don't use that word very often. I had to look it up. I thought, I think I know what a pinion is, but I, I know what it is in a car. Uh, but I don't know what it is um, on a bird. So the pinion, if you remember, is is the wing that works at the widest possible range, uh, that, that covers the widest possible range and the widest possible abilities and, and the widest possible conditions. Much like on a car, pinions on birds make steering easier and smooth so that they can glide through the most difficult of winds and hang on and not lose uh, track of where they're going. And this is what God says, that as we take refuge in him, God is sheltering us in the best of all situations. His range of care is the widest possible range. His ability to care for you is at the widest possible ability. The conditions in which you find yourself under the shadow of God's wings is ultimately the safest place to find yourself. Which is why David can say, even though he's hiding in a cave, he's not using the cave as his ultimate refuge. He's using it as an image of his ultimate refuge, which is God himself. David's not trusting in the fact that he's in a cave. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't go into a cave. He is a man of prudence, after all. He's not going to stand out in the desert and say, All right, God, I'm under your wings. And no, he, he uses wisdom. He hides in a cave. But he's not trusting in the fact that he's in a cave. Now, dear ones, while the ride can feel bumpy at times, because of God's pinions, he's able to steer your life in the best of all possible ways, easier and smoother than if you hadn't experienced these difficulties with him as your refuge. Imagine what it would be like if he weren't there. That's not all. David reminds himself, what's God doing here? God is here. God is over this situation. God is protecting me in the midst of this situation. God is not absent. 
He hasn't left the nest to me as a little bird, fend for myself and fall out and die. No, he's there. He's feeding me. He's providing for me. He's hovering over me. And it will pass. But notice what David says in verse 2. He says, I cry out to God most high. I cry out to God most high. David reminds himself that God is not just God. He's the most high God. Not Meaning not that he's way out there and we can't ever get to him. He's way high above us. It doesn't mean that he's far away and aloof. It means that he's sovereign, that he's in control. He's the most high God. When we cry to God, we cry out to a sovereign God. We cry out to the God who not only knows our lives and cares for us, but who controls the circumstances of our lives and controls the circumstances of all those who would wish evil against us. That's good news. That when we cry out to a God, we cry out to a God who cares for us, but also a sovereign God who controls the circumstances of our lives. But notice, notice what David says here. He says, I cry out to God, verse 2, to God most high, to God who what? Fulfills his purpose for me. You know, you we, we joke about it, you know, sometimes, or we say it because it's become kind of a Christian cliche that God has a purpose for our lives. But dear ones, just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it's not precious. That is a great, precious promise that God has a purpose for me, for you. Literally, it's God works for me. David does not write, notice, God fulfills my purpose for me. We wouldn't want to do that, would we? You're not trying to get God to co-sign your life plan, are you? No. We, 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 bring our, we know that he's fulfilling his purpose for us. Not our purpose, his purpose. God never promises to fulfill your plans for yourself, but he does promise to fulfill all his plans for you. We often make plans that fail, even plans that we think will be got to God's glory. But we can imagine how God might use us, and then we take steps to bring that about, and then we watch as those plans fall apart in front of us. But God, they were for your glory. They were motivated by good desires. And the Lord says, yes, they were, and I'm pleased by that, but no. I have a better idea in mind that you don't need to know about right now, but you will be really happy about when you find out in eternity. Lord, we wanted that baby. Why'd you take it away? Lord, we wanted that. That was a good desire. That was a desire you put in our heart. Do you believe that God puts desires in your heart that he doesn't fulfill right now? Yes. But that doesn't mean that the desire isn't good, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't mean good from it. He does. And it's going to be sweeter for having felt what you felt and experienced what you experienced. See, my plans, my purposes, even my conception of God's purpose for me may end up being completely wrong-headed. But God's plans for us will never, ever fail. And David is coming to this God, confident in this purpose, to a God who works for him, who has a purpose for him, and who finished what he starts. God is for him. God is not against him. It looks like it. It feels like it. But it's not. See, when we go through times where people are against us or circumstances are hard or suffering is really acute, 
We can feel that experience like it's been stamped on us and it's our fi- it's the final word of God's identity over our lives. But the truth is, is that God has already given us a different identity so that we can navigate that storm helpfully. So that we wouldn't look to the storm as the verification for who we are. We look to the storm, we're in trouble. But if we look at who God has made us to be and what he has told us is true... In every trial and loss, my hope is in the cross where your compassions never fail. Because right now, my life totally doesn't feel like God loves me. But I look at the cross and say, yeah, he does. There's no way he doesn't love me. He's already done the worst. That's why we look to the cross. We look to the cross because life doesn't feel good all the time. And it doesn't feel like God is treating us like he should treat his children. But your identity is God's child is far deeper than anything that's happening to you, no matter what terrible atrocities they may be. Beloved, when we're at our darkest moments, our darkest periods in life, the moments of danger, terror, times when you lose your job, or the moments when you experience heartache in a relationship with your children, or the moment when friends abandon you, or experience trouble in your marriage, or you lose your health, what if these moments weren't accidents? What if these moments... Were moments, weren't moments when God took his eye off of you, but rather moments where God is fulfilling his purpose for you. If he puts you in a cave, there's a reason. If he puts you on a cross and in a tomb, there's a reason. If people hotly pursue you, there's a purpose. If people plot and plan your failure and destruction, you have the promise of his mercy, salvation, covenant faithfulness, and steadfast love. Just think about Joseph in the Bible. I go back to Joseph's story again and again, Genesis 37 to 50. Abuse and betrayal mark his entire life. It's a big part of his story. When he's a teenager, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He becomes a slave in Egypt. He's falsely accused of rape by his master's wife. He's thrown in prison. Several years in prison, he's released after many well-intended people forgot him. He was released and eventually he's put in charge, right, of all of Egypt, just under Pharaoh. And at the, name, at the end of the story, Joseph meets these brothers of his again who abused him and violated him. And instead of taking revenge, he says what David would say, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, God used the terrible betrayal that Joseph suffered to put him into a position where he could save his family from famine. Joseph did not minimize what happened to him. He said, you meant it for evil. It was sin. It was wrong. But he had a wider perspective. The meaning of his story was bigger than the evil that he suffered. God was at work bringing good out of the extreme betrayal. God was at work in his life. God was fulfilling his purpose for him. See, His abuse was not the last word in his life. And your story, which may be marked by betrayal and pain, those things don't have the last word either. Because your story is not only about the pain of betrayal, it's about Jesus taking what others meant for evil and redeeming it for a good purpose in your life. For David, that meant he was going to be king. And by becoming king... He would become the ancestor of the coming Messiah and David's mistakes and sins along the way will not, cannot derail God's plans for him. And that includes all the painful and confusing parts of our own life story as well. See, the story of your life is bigger 
then you're suffering. What happened to you is not the last word on who you are or where your life is going. Now, it's a significant part of your story. You may bear the scars for the rest of your life. You're not the only human who's going to have scars in eternity. There's a God-man who does, and he's not getting rid of them. But they've been redeemed, and he bears them on his glorified body. It's a significant part of your story, but it's not the most significant part of your story. It's only one part of the new story of your life that Jesus is writing. Here's what verse 6 says in Psalm 57. That David reminds himself, They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves, David says. See, ultimately, all of the evil that's intended against you will be used by God for you. And if those who sinned against you don't come to Christ in repentance, they will be judged in all eternity. Their sin will be paid for one way or another, by themselves or by Jesus. And we're good. We want them to be saved, I hope. That would be the merciful heart that Joseph had, that Jesus has to those who sinned against him. We stand ready to receive them back. We don't stiff arm them. Praise the Lord, Jesus didn't do that to us. Well, we'll see if your repentance is genuine. Until then, five years probation, get away from me. You may need to do that with some people. But that doesn't mean your heart towards them is bitter and angry. You may need to set boundaries. Those are fine. But your heart must never be plotting for their demise. Because ultimately, all the evil that God has intended, or that, that, that people intended against us, God will be used for good. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Others sin against me will only serve if unrepented of and undealt with by Jesus in a greater sentence of judgment for them. But the very death that they wish to come to you will come upon their own heads, he says in verse 6. They dug the pit, but they're going to fall into it themselves. So that's all that, that's just some of what God says. And that's enough, I think, to get us through difficulties. God has a purpose for me. I'm under the shadow of his wings. The storms of destruction will pass by. He sends out his steadfast love and faithfulness. But let's conclude with what does faith say? So let's put down the yellow highlighter and pick up the green marker. And let's underline all the phrases of how we should respond by faith to this. Notice in verse 1, In you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. It's one thing for God to be a refuge. It's another thing for you to go and let him be your refuge. Let him be your place of safety. Let him be your retreat, even in the midst of difficult external circumstances. Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators on the Psalms because he's so brief and gets to the point. He says, as for David's refuge, where most men would have named the cave, David saw beyond it. End quote. Don't stop at the cave as your refuge. Don't let your money be your refuge. Don't let your family be your refuge. Ultimately, let God be your refuge. Ultimately. Notice what he says in verse 2. I cry out to God. Verse 1. God, be merciful to me. We got, that's how faith responds. We pray. We cry out to God. We say, God, be merciful to me. Beloved, God is, in, is mindful of your suffering and he hears your cries. He heard the cry of a child dying of thirst in the desert in Genesis 21. He heard the cries of the Israelites suffering as slaves in Exodus 2, and he hears you. God has much to say to those who have experienced evil at the hands of others. So he has much to say to you. God listens to my cries. 
for help. And here's the good news is that because we appeal to his mercy, he treats us contra-conditionally to our deservedness. <laughs> our deservedness is not a factor in this. We cry out to him to answer not on the basis of who we are or what we deserve, but based on who God is and how he responds to those in distress. His mercy is greater than our sin and the sin of others against us, and his steadfast love is on us from eternity past into eternity future. So we cry out to him that we be merciful to him. But you notice twice, there's only one verse in this entire psalm that's repeated twice. They kind of serve as the bookends of the two sections. You got first section, verses 1 to 4, and then a bookend, verse 5. And then you got 6 to 10 and a bookend, verse 11. What's the verse? Look at 5 and look at, look at 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's the refrain that David is singing and teaching Israel to sing in the midst of his suffering. Notice how David's attitude changes once he prays in verse 5. After the distress of verse 4, he reminds himself of the truth of verse 5, which is, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And then what happens between verse 6 and 7? Verse 6, he said, My soul was bowed down. Verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. One of the ways that we fight by faith is to get our eyes off of our own lives and what is happening in our world to what will eventually be true in all of God's world. Suffering drives us into ourselves and we have to push it out, of get out of ourselves. What is most important in life is not that we are relieved, but that God is exalted. And that God's glory fill the entire earth. That he be known and loved and worshipped and treasured for the creator and redeemer that he is. That is the great travesty, not my suffering. The great travesty is that God, millions upon millions, if not billions of people, will wake up tomorrow and ignore God. He will not be treasured. He will not be worshipped. He will not be prized. He will not be trusted. He will not be walked with. He will not be confessed to. He will not be sought. He will not be glorified by the creatures that are made in His image to do so. That is the great travesty of the universe. That is the greatest evil that exists Every single day, every headline, if it were rightful, the greatest sin that was committed today, God was not honored by every nation as he ought to be. That would be the leading article in the New York Times every day because that's the greatest crime in the universe committed every day. There are lots of lesser crimes that deserve headlines. That's the biggest headline. See, we can take what's happened to us and we can use it to help others. And one of the ways that we do that is by recognizing what does God's glory have to do with the situation that I'm experiencing. In preparing for this sermon, I read an article about a woman who had suffered terrible physical and sexual abuse at the hands of many male relatives from the age of 3 to 14. She was finally rescued by a social worker and placed in foster care. She later married. She had two children and had become a social worker herself who counseled abused children. She hadn't forgotten her suffering. She wasn't treating it lightly, lightly. She was still working through its effects in her own life, but her life story was about more than her abuse. Her life story became a means by which she would honor God by helping others. 
She was creating a loving home for her husband and children. She was reaching out to others who were suffering as she had. Her suffering wasn't forgotten. It was redeemed. Just like Joseph's. Just like Jesus. And just like ours can be. Now let me conclude with verse 3. Because this is where our ultimate hope rests. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame he who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David believes that help is on the way. That deliverance is coming from heaven. Verse 3 of this psalm is more significant than maybe David even realized at first glance. You see, God did send from heaven and save, didn't he? He will send from heaven and save me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And it was a person. It was himself. It was the Son of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, from heaven to earth to save us. And because you're God's child, you're not alone in the nightmare of pointless suffering. It's true that the heart knows its own bitterness, Proverbs 14.10, and even your dearest friend can't fully understand it. The terror, the aloneness, the pain, the horror. But Jesus understands. And he's with you. Jesus experienced every form of suffering when he was in the world. Isaiah 53, we read it earlier. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was betrayed and tortured. He was well acquainted with grief. And he will never leave you. The Gospel of John closes with this verse. As And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You know what? If you're a Christian, your life is one of those books that John's talking about. You are the continuing story of Jesus Christ in this world. You are proof that he was raised from the dead. You are continuing the story of what Jesus did. It's a story where terrible evils happen, but Jesus shows up and did something. He redeemed me. He's still redeeming me so that I can love, forgive, and do good to others around me. Aren't you thankful to be a part? I'm thankful to not only be written in the Lamb's book of life, but I'm thankful to be one of the books that Jesus is continuing to write. And every chapter, as C.S. Lewis says, gets better than the one before. So, dear ones, take the phrases that we underlined this morning. Don't forget your red pen, your blue pen, your yellow highlighter, your green pen. Take those, and as you read the Psalms, put them in your own words as prayer. Find a place, woods, your car, your bedroom, where you're comfortable making some noise to God. And say these prayers out loud to him. Remember, you're talking to the Lord who loves you. You're talking to the Lord who hears you, who's going to act to save you, and who will redeem your soul in peace. Don't leave these pens on the desk. Take them up and use them. Pray it. God is there. He's listening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you hear us. We know that you answer us. You always answer us. It's either a yes, it's either a no, or it's wait. 
But Lord, you hear our cries and you answer according to your wisdom. And we thank you as one pastor said one time, Lord, if we knew everything you knew, we would ask for whatever you give. We don't know all that you know. And so um, we trust you, though, because you know far more than we do. You're far more in control than we ever could be, and you have proven your steadfast love for us at the cross and the resurrection. So we don't question your love when hard times come. We know that these storms of will one day pass by. They will not always abide over our lives. You are our refuge. You are God most high. You are the one to whom we cry. We pray that you would be trusted by us, that you'd be honored, and that we do pray, God, and we thank you that there is coming a day when the prayers that David uttered here will be answered, that you will be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Your name will fill this earth, and your glory will cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray that day would come soon. We long for it. We long for it. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord would be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.